Hello everyone and welcome to CEO Journals. For those of you that are new here, I'm your host Ethan Bridge and I just want to start off by saying thank you for tuning in to today's show. On today's episode of the podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking to Ali Almasawi. Ali is the author of Bad Arguments, Bad Choices and The Point of Pointless Work. His books have been read by 3.2 million readers, translated into 21 languages and have sold over 300,000 copies in print. In his other career, he leads an engineering and design team at Apple. You've heard that right, being an author isn't Ali's full-time gig. He has had over 3.2 million readers, all whilst having a full-time job. This side hustle, or what Ali actually calls his side passion, is something he tackles in his mornings and evenings. This is something I imagine a lot of you can relate to, so in this discussion I delve deeply into how Ali balances his time between his jobs whilst giving his all to both careers. I also ask him, as many of you are probably already wondering, if this man is already a successful author, why on earth hasn't he quit his full-time job and gone all in on his side passion? We also dive into the details of his most successful book, Bad Arguments, where we discuss some key argumentative tactics and logical fallacies you can apply to your everyday life. This episode is packed full of value and I can't wait for you to hear what Ali has to say. So without any further ado, let's dive straight into today's episode. Enjoy. Hello everyone, welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. I am super excited today because on the show we have Ali Almasawi. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. Yourself? I'm very well, thank you. Hopefully I didn't mess up your surname there. I know I asked you before the interview how it's pronounced and I think I remembered right, but I think we're there. So for the listeners that don't know who you are, if you want to just give us a quick 60 second introduction of who you are and what you do, please. Sure. Uh, I am uh, based in San Francisco. Uh, I do uh, engineering and design uh, by day in the tech industry. I've been in this industry for about 12 years. Um, it, it's also what I studied in college and in grad school. So I studied computer science and I studied systems engineering. And it's something I've been interested in from a very uh, early age. So I was coding since middle school, if I, if I remember correctly. About seven years ago, I stumbled into the publishing industry. I always had a habit of working on side projects. And it so happened that this one side project turned into a, a book that did pretty well. So I've been Uh, pretty intimate with that industry uh, since then and it's turned into a a kind of a second career. Awesome and I can't wait to dive into that a little bit more later in the show but what the way I like to start all my episodes is to sort of throw it throw it back with my guests and ask them about their their younger self and their time at school specifically. So let's focus on a 14 year old version of yourself. How were you at that age? How were you in school? Were you a straight A student? Were you the class clown or you sort of just pretty much bang average got on with what you needed to do? Uh, I, I was definitely not a straight-A student. Uh, if, uh, if I remember correctly, I was somewhere in between uh, a B and an A-minus a student. So I was just, just about on the edge. And uh, yeah, never, never really felt particularly passionate about school or about homework or about assignments. Uh, in fact, I, I didn't even apply to, uh, to the college I ended up going to. Uh, my dad pushed me to apply. He chose the college. He had heard of it. 
and that's how I ended up there. So not not particularly um, academically minded, but I, I did I did do relatively well in school in terms of grades. Uh, on a personal level, not very social, and I think that's why I I came to uh, coding and to computers because it was uh, it, it was a way where I could express my creativity, and I finally could feel that there was you could build a career out of this. This was something that someone like me, with my personality, could do and and, and excel at. Um, so yeah, it was um, it was it was quite life changing when I when I came to that realization. But yeah, not not particularly a class clown either. <laughs> so yeah. did you have like a group of like small group of friends that you were all interested in coding? You sort of just all went off and did it together. I did, yeah, but they weren't interested in coding. Interestingly enough, they were interested in philosophy. So it was probably um, a group of three or four of us. And what we would do is we would go to um, cafes and we would just chat about books that we'd read. Uh, we each came from a kind of, we had different thoughts about different things. It was, I would say it was philosophy and some politics as well. So we had different ideas about how things should be run, how countries ought to be run, um, how the ide various ideologies uh, fared against each other, uh, what equality and, and egalitarian, egalitarian, uh, what equality means for, uh, uh, for people. And um, it was really those, uh, those conversations that, uh, and I mentioned this, I think, in either in the book or I mentioned it in one of the interviews that happened soon after the first book came out. Uh, the, the, those, those conversations that, and that uh, period in my time, in, in my life, was, uh, was kind of how the idea for the book started. Um, yeah, just, just sitting back and talking about different things, uh, being respectful of each other. There was always like, mutual respect, even though we disagreed with each other. And um, yeah. there, was no, there was no Instagram or Facebook. You know, there was no kind of pressure to, uh, to project any of this to anyone. Uh, it was just us talking. And then uh, you know, by the end of the night, it, was the, uh, it just ended. So, um, your, I mean, your interest in coding and tech and things like that may help you land a job at Apple, if I'm rightly say so myself. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. So how did that come about? Was that your first employment straight out of college? Uh, no, my first employment was um, actually as a contractor for some arm of the United Nations. Uh, I was uh, 21 years old. I, I finished uh, uh, college at 20 and then I finished my master's degree at 21 and I went back home, which is this place called Bahrain. Not many people have heard of it. And uh, the, the market wasn't particularly great at that time. So I landed a job as a contractor, just, it was more of a consultant type role. And I spent some time there and then I worked for an airline for, for a while. And then I worked on um, some other project that was uh, trying to um, uh, digitize some, uh, you know, some convoluted government process. So I did that for three years and um, I wasn't particularly happy. I mean, it was, it was a it was a fairly dull period in my life those uh, those three and a half years, and then I got the opportunity to come back to the U.S. to uh, to go to grad school again. So I I, I leapt on that uh, opportunity, came here, and then out of grad school that second time uh, I joined Mozilla, which is a company known for the Firefox browser. They had a data science team that was just starting up, and they needed they needed someone to do data visualization. And a data visualization is essentially someone who uh, helps a team of statisticians, at least that's how it was at the time, uh, decide how to communicate their ideas to different audiences. 
So if you're a statistician and you've put together a model or a forecast, how do you then communicate that to a CEO or some other executive in a way that's compelling and engaging and informative? And I did that for five years. And uh, um, I have to say, I, I think I fell into that job as well. So it wasn't by design because I'd, I'd done some data visualization research in grad school. And then off the back of that, that's how I got their interest. Uh, and then from there, um, three years ago, I, I joined Apple. Uh, someone had seen my work at Mozilla. They were interested in replicating that type of work uh, here. So I did that for the first year. A lot of data visualization prototyping with executives in mind. Uh, and then about a year and a half ago, I transitioned into this current role where I'm doing more engineering and design. So the, the fundamental principle is still the same. We're still thinking about how, how to be empathetic towards users. Who are these users? Uh, how do we make sure that we're maximizing for qualities like usability and readability and consistency? Uh, but the, uh, the angle is a bit different. Now it's more engineering and design. Of course, but then this isn't your, well, this is your full-time job, correct? Nine right. till whatever time you end up finishing. But then, then there's your side hustle, your, the fact that you're an author, you write, and you do this in your spare time. So is your, your day must be pretty jam-packed from start to finish. So how have you find actually balancing the time between your full-time job and your so-called side hustle? I think uh, di a discipline. It all comes down to discipline. So when I, um, as we were saying before, the, before we started recording, I, um, I've, I've always worked on side projects. It's, it's, it's been a an avenue for me to try and express the things that I've not been able to express in my day job. So I, it must have been soon after I joined uh, Mozilla when I felt like there was there were there, there were projects that I wanted to work on that I couldn't do at uh, at work either because they weren't relevant um, or because you know it was it was difficult to justify them to uh you know, to my manager for instance. So uh, just through discipline, um, I figured out that there I have time before I go to work. I drop off my daughter at preschool and then I have say an hour before I have to start work. And then similarly after work, I might have an hour or so. Uh, I might have um, some time on the weekends, early mornings, late afternoons, whatever the case may be. But just maximizing the, the free time uh, that I had was, was how I did it really. And just sticking with it, you know, not, not, not giving up um, on things. And actually a lot of the things that I worked on on, on the side didn't, didn't go anywhere, but if the few of them that did go and that did kind of make it and uh, uh, became became well more well known than I would have imagined, that ended up uh, that that ended up being the the stuff that I'm that I, that I carried on working on. So I would say discipline and uh, just uh, sticking with things, um, optimizing one's time, and also I would say the um, uh, getting into this cadence of um, of routine. So one, one thing that I, I've always done is I always go to a cafe in the morning. It's, it's like I do it religiously. Every morning I go to a cafe. And the reason I do that is not because I, uh, I like the coffee or I like the, you know, the, the setting. It's because it, that's kind of the trigger for me that if I go to the cafe, then I have to get some work done. And um, on days when I can, uh, you know, when I, when I can, uh, I'll, I'll even give myself a reward. I'll say if I go to the cafe and I get, make some progress, then I can eat out, for instance, or I can go to that restaurant. So that kind of um, mindset has helped me stay, stay focused.
So what time do you wake up in the morning? Because you do this all before dropping your daughter off, going to work, all of that. So what t- you must wake up quite early. I, I wake up around uh, 6.30 to 7. Okay. Not, not particularly early. Uh, I do go to sleep um, early, um, around 10 mm-hmm. o'clock. So that's, that's, always, that's how it's always been. I've always uh, liked yeah. getting up early. And uh, yeah, being outside, you know, early morning, people are just waking up. Uh, the streets, I live downtown, so the streets are still quiet. And then slowly you see kind of life and, and, and energy uh, everywhere. And that kind of, that kind of transition is, uh, I, I like being there for it, seeing it. Yeah, and I, I, I admire it as well, because you, you hear all these people and they've got all of these passion ideas that they want to do in their spare time. But then they go, oh, I, I'm, I don't have time. And I, or when I get home from work, I'm too tired to do X, Y, Z. And you think, well, people, this is where people can build up these passion projects to build up that side income to eventually, hopefully, take over what they do and don't want to do anymore so it just goes to show with what you've done is that you've been able to build up this passion project on the side and it's worked extremely well so i mean you as you say you may only have an hour before work or and an hour after work that but that that's still two hours a day and if you do that seven days a week that's 14 hours a week to work on your passion projects that's a hell of a lot of time and oh even if you just knock it, knock at it accumulatively over day to day to day to day, that all adds up eventually. If say if you, especially with you being an author and you're writing a book, two hours a day to get through a book, you could have a book done within. Well, I'm no author, so I don't know, but you could get it in a, done within a short period of time just by knocking off two hours a day. It's not like you have to sit down for a twelve-hour stint to get God knows how many pages done. If you can do it over time, it's probably quite refreshing just doing it only two hours a day as well isn't it rather than locking yourself in a room for 14 hours hoping that you're going to try and get it finished in a couple of days yeah uh i mean there are two points there one is it's amazing what you can get done when you're uh, hungry and mm. uh, i think that's the most important quality in, in all of this and more uh, more important than talent than skill is just that that sheer hunger to get to, to get your uh to get to your goals and I found that the, the most motivating thing. And the other thing to your last point is constraints are actually useful. You know, sometimes you think that if you didn't have constraints, if you had more money, if you had more time, if you had more resources, if you had that study overlooking the, you know, the town center and that beautiful furniture or the beautiful desk, you'll, you'll get more work done. But it can actually be a work against you. So that, um, I, you know, I, I try to think of constraints as, as opportunities to kind of optimize my own productivity and um it's 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 worked i mean evidently just looking back at the few last few years it has worked for me and i'm sure it's worked for others as well who don't have the means to kind of have everything that they need for what they uh, need to get done but they make it work with what they do have so what's the idea of going into the author-based um career was that chasing a passion over the fact that you had an entrepreneurial mindset and you wanted to make money from it were you chasing the passion and the money was just simply a byproduct i never had money in mind when i uh, first started out and i never wanted to become an author in fact uh, it was just a web-based project because I, I i uh i worked on apps and i worked on websites so this was just another website it so happened to look like a book and so that's where the opportunity arose that if since this does look like a book and people are interested in, in a print version of this. So what if we do turn it into a book? 
And then once I started thinking about it as a book, and this must have been a, a couple of months or so after the project began, uh, then the question was, how do we make this self-sustainable? You know, we have to think about financials. It's, it, I can't run it as a charity. Um, I did ask for donations in the, uh, in the, in the early days, in fact, since, since day one, but the donations were never enough to cover even a first print. So how do we, yeah, how do we make this thing sustainable? And, um, and thankfully for that project, it worked pretty well. Uh, there was a huge risk that I took initially. I put all of my own money into the, into the printing of those first wow. 4,000 4, copies. And the reason I did that is because um, I couldn't get a publisher or an agent interested in the project. So the way it works in the U.S., I don't know how it is in, uh, in England, but in the U.S., you have to either approach uh, a publisher that accepts unsolicited manuscripts or you have to approach a literary agent. And a literary agent then, if they like the project, they will uh, contact a set of publishers and try to sell the, uh, the book. So I couldn't get anyone interested in it, but I, deep down I, I felt like this, this has to work. I had the data to show that people were interested in the project. Uh, donations were coming in, even though in terms of um, dollars, they weren't a lot, but in terms of number of donations, they were significant. It was significantly high. And um, visitors, so there was at that point, I think a million and a half visitors. Uh, so I thought this has to work in print, but I, I couldn't get anyone to, uh, to publish it. So I thought, you know, part of this process is, um, taking risks and uh, I have to actually, you know, I actually have to do that and uh, see how it works out. So we, I printed uh, 4,000 copies of it. Um, it started selling uh, almost immediately. It, I mean, the, the reviews were, were fairly good. Sales were pretty good. And uh, at that point, a, a publisher got in touch and said, would you be interested in us acquiring this project? And then it made sense financially. So that's, that's yeah. how that, that relationship began. So to answer your original question, Money was not top of mind when I first started, but thankfully by, by uh, being deliberate about the decisions I made, it ended up working out pretty well for the project. For sure. And I mean, I've got the stats here. You've now had 3.2 million readers. Your books have been translated into 21 different languages and you've sold over 300,000 copies in print. They are some pretty impressive numbers from when you originally couldn't even get someone to publish and you had to put in the money for the 4,000 original copies. Yeah, I think uh, relative to where I was, they're pretty impressive. I had, um, I don't know how many, but in the tens of followers on Twitter, I mean, let's say 20 or 30 followers. I, I was never active on social media, and I still am not that active. Probably Instagram is the only platform I, I, I genuinely enjoy. But the rest, I've never, it's, never, it's not something that I, I know how to do well. Um, so yeah, to see those numbers, um, considering that at one point I was going uh, you know, door to door essentially to the uh, bookshops in the Bay Area trying to convince them to buy the book is, um, is, is nice to see. It's nice to see because uh, it's, um, that means the project has come full circle. And uh, it also encourages you to uh, take on other projects. And that's what I did. Hmm. You know, once once that, was, that project was at that point, I thought, well, now, now is a good time, uh, both for me personally, as well as Know, financially to uh, consider working on another project and I did that almost immediately after um, um, after the book sold to the publisher so would it if you don't mind me asking would it not make sense for you now that you've built up a brand you've got is it how many books have you written now you've, have you written three or you're written more 
Uh, two books. The third one was uh, like a special case. It was uh, yeah. a, a limited run um, of a few hundred copies, about three books in total. Yeah. So you've three books. Would it not, now that you've built up this personal brand for yourself and you've sort of cemented yourself as an author, to just quit your job at Apple and go full time with this? Or is it more of a fact for you that you like it being a passion project? You don't want to have it as a job as such? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question uh, because I'm sure a lot of people are faced with that decision. Uh, they do something that works out and then they have to decide, do they, do they do that full time or do they continue doing it as a hobby? And I think for me, um, up until this point, I've liked the idea of writing as a hobby. I think because it, it, when it's a hobby, it's unconstrained. I can try anything I want. I can go from nonfiction to fiction which is something I'm experimenting with these days. I could go to a completely different genre. Uh, I could try ideas that might not be commercially viable, uh, but artistically interesting. Uh, I'm not sure I'd be able to do that if this was a full-time thing. If I were yeah. uh, a Stephen King or a, what's that guy's name? John Grisham, I think, where you're known for, for one, one type of book, then uh, that's what your editor, the editor expects from you, right? Every time you have a manuscript, it better be about that same type of, type of thing. And I think that was, um, that was where I was at at the time when I was considering whether I should do this full time. And still, I think there's value in doing things um, on the side as, as hobbies. But everyone is, is a different case. And um, in, in fact, it, it, for me as well, it might change sometime in the future. But for now, I think that's how I look at it. I want it to be more of an yeah. artistic thing than a, uh, than a moneymaker. Yeah. Exactly. And especially because you've got a you, I think you mentioned you've got a family, then you've, you've got them to worry about as well. You've got, when it comes to that being your sole form of income, it becomes a lot scarier with the sort of risks you take. Right. But again, we go back to risk and hunger. And uh, because I'm kind of playing it a bit safe right now, it means that I might not get to where I could get to if I, yeah. if I, were, if I were to kind of throw in the towel here and do this full time. And then all of a sudden I, I have to make it work. And I'm again in that, uh, you know, in that kind of uh, fight mindset that I was a few years ago where I had to sell the book because I just have to sell these 4,000 copies. There's no way around it. So I'll, I'll do everything I, I have to do to make that happen. Um, so yeah, I, it's, um, it's definitely a trade-off. And uh, I have, uh, have a, tre a tremendous respect for, uh, for anyone who takes those kinds of risks and just goes for it, realizing that they might lose everything. But it's, it's, it's the only way where, you know, in this short life that you can actually uh, stand a chance at succeeding is if you take those risks. No, and I, I completely agree. So I'd like to actually talk about bad arguments and the bit more about the book itself so the listeners can learn a bit more about it. And so what was the sort of inspiration behind the books? It's not necessarily a book that tells you how to argue. It's, it's more how to not argue. So what sort of gave you the idea and to eventually put it into print? Uh, those uh, those, those uh, informal conversations that my friends and I had in school, as I was saying, that was um, probably the, the first time I thought about this kind of thing. Uh, I thought there are some things that I do in, those, in that setting that works uh, or that work and some things that don't work. And so then I thought, well, what are these things that work? And I realized that it's usually when I'm not being emotional, when I'm being objective, when I'm listening to the other person, when I'm repeating their position and then stating my position. 
um, it's the type of uh, language that I use. It's the uh, the way I jump from one uh, one idea to the next. And then um, when I went to college, uh, again, college is a great place to uh, to expand your 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 knowledge and your uh, kind of the, the the types of people that you're uh, that you you can come in come into touch come in uh, come in. Um, um, you can expand your your types of friendships. So there are different types of people you can uh, uh, you can engage with. And at that point, I realized that there was actually some structure to uh, these things. And I started reading about logical fallacies. And uh, and so I just made some notes in uh, in a notebook that I had, so that the next time I went into a debate or a discussion on some uh, topical issue, uh, what are some things that ought to be top of mind? So for example. Don't equivocate. Don't attack the person. Focus on the issue. Uh, don't assume that something is a cause for something else only because it came before it. And uh, that list eventually um, uh, formed the basis of the uh, Bad Arguments Project. And the illustrations came from uh, uh, an idea of, of how, how do you make this, uh, this content accessible? Because I, I mentioned in the, at the end uh, in the references section, a lot of websites that already did this kind of thing. Uh, so there's a logical fallacies, I think, .com maybe, or something like that, that already lists all the logical fallacies or a lot of the logical fallacies that, are, that exist. So uh, I, the point of mentioning those uh, references was to say that this stuff is not novel, really. The, the novel part is making it accessible. And the illustrations were a way of doing that. Uh, so I, um, Thankfully, I had a style in mind, and uh, I started looking online, and I found uh, this one illustrator, Alejandro, from Colombia, who was fantastic. And uh, we hit it off right away, and um, thankfully, the book uh, came together uh, just uh, through the sparse prose and the, uh, the artwork, which is humorous, but not too humorous. And um, yeah, compelling title. So it all worked together. And I think, I think the artwork is a, is a brilliant idea, because obviously, the majority of us are visual learners and it almost takes us back to without, I don't want to make it sound like it is because it's not, but it's almost put it in an aspect of a, of a children's book because of the, with the images and the illustrations, but it's, it works. It works. It does, as you say, it does draw the reader in and just makes you understand more. I'm definitely a visual learner myself. So when there are things like this along with text, it personally for me is much easier to read. So I think the illustrations work brilliantly. Yeah, and it's interesting you should say that because that was the biggest difficulty when the project started is uh, I kept being asked by agents and um, I don't think any publishers ever wrote back, but the agents who wrote back uh, would ask me, is this for kids? Is it for adults? Or what do you mean it's, uh, it, it looks like a book for kids but is actually for adults? So that was a bit of a, a concept that, was, uh, that I had to get across. But I agree, I, I love those kinds of books. Um, Alice in Wonderland, uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, The Phantom Tollbooth, The Little, Little uh, Prince. Those books, uh, Shantan's books, for instance, The Arrival, The Lost Thing, the other ones, where you read the book and it's not apparent if it's for uh, children or if it's for adults, but it could be for both. And uh, just from feedback that I've received on, on that project, um, it seems like both young readers and adults have found it useful. And um, it's, I can't take full credit for that. I didn't know who it was for when I was writing it. I just <laughs> felt like this was a, an accessible way uh, to get this content across. But is it for 7 to 12-year-olds? Is it for 8 to 13-year-olds? It's, 
it was hard for me to really articulate that or to know uh, know it for certain. And it just goes to show that sometimes, um, you know, you go with your gut and you do what you think might work for a, a sizable kind of audience, and uh, it, it might just work, and it might appeal to, um, uh, to a bigger audience than you expected. I was reading a book uh, recently called How to Live uh, about this uh, 16th century uh, philosopher called Montaigne. And uh, it's, it's one question, how to live, and each chapter is an answer to that question. So there are 20 chapters. And the chapter that I was uh, looking uh, through was on uh, giving up control. And the point there was that whether it's an artistic thing or, 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 any, or generally in life, anytime you put something out into the world, you don't control it anymore. So you have to be willing to let it go. And people are going to adapt it in a way that makes sense to them. They're going to interpret it in a way that you maybe never expected. Um, and uh, the artist, the writer, the entrepreneur, whatever the case may be, must be uh, uh, content with uh, just letting, letting things uh, be reinterpreted and adapted as, as people see fit. And I think that's the joy of, of that, that whole process. I, I mean, I think I'm going to have to pick up a copy of that book. It sounds, sounds very interesting. Um, but no, you, I know you, you mentioned these, um, these fallacies earlier. And so if you had to pick out three logical fallacies for my audience, your fifth, the three you think are the most important, what three would you pick out and why? It's tough to say which are most important, but they are the ones that come to mind right now is um, there's one called uh, No True Scotsman. And the artwork for that is uh, a pig who's trying to get into a, what looks like a nightclub that's for pigs only. And then he gets to the, uh, to the door and the bouncer tells him, well, it's, it's only for real pigs. It's not for all pigs. So all of a sudden, the, the, the person guarding the, uh, what looks like, I say, like, a, like a nightclub or whatever it might be, uh, is, is redefining what that category actually means. So all of a sudden, you realize that you're not a pig. You're something else. And uh, it's, this is also called uh, moving the goalposts sometimes, mm. redefining things on the fly. Uh, you see it a lot in politics. You see it in other um, uh, debates and conversations. So in politics, for instance, like nowadays, there's, an, uh, there's a presidential elections coming up in November. So I'm sure we're going to see more of that. But we, we've already seen examples of that where someone will ask uh, or, will, or will make the point, is so-and-so a real Republican? Well, no, they're not a real Republican for these reasons. So and so a Democrat. No, they're not actually a Democrat. They're not actually a Democrat. I think that's the that's the operating word. Um, and the uh, the reason why it's effective is because all of a sudden, once you remove someone from a category, uh, and that's it. All the the properties that you would mentally associate with their, with that category are no longer at play. So it is very effective. And um, again, like I say, you see it all the time. Uh, another one uh, that comes to mind is um, not a cause for a cause. In the book, it's uh, a beaver who is uh, going up a, a mountain. And uh, the only reason he does that is because he's noticed that every time he goes up the mountain, at a certain time, the sun rises. So he's made the association that me going up the mountain is what's causing the sun to come up every day. And again, it's a silly example in the book, but the point is that we, we sometimes do that. We create associations that uh, are not in accordance with reality, uh, only because because of the order in which they happen. Um, another one uh, that is pretty big is uh, ad hominem attacks, so personal attacks. 
against people. So if there is an issue being discussed, all of a sudden we move away from the issue and we start you know, saying, well, you, you did this and this and you did that, that and that. And, uh, oh, well, you didn't pay your taxes last year. Well, you've got, you know, so many kids you don't know about, as was the case in the UK. And uh, so it's, 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 it, it works very well because people like that kind of thing, right? It, it makes for exciting television, but it doesn't really address any of the, uh, any of the issues that are being discussed. But again, the one point I make in the book is that there's a difference between uh, uh, reasoning and, and logical thinking and rhetoric. In fact, things that are effective uh, rhetorical devices uh, are, are effective for a reason because the, the person using them can influence uh, the audience. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily make for a you know, for a, for an informed audience, you don't end up with a more informed audience. On the contrary, sure. And I like how you um you you associate with this with politics as well, because it's, there's a lot of technique when it comes to all of these politicians' speeches and when they go on interviews and things like that. Because when you actually pick apart what they're saying and break down the language, as you said, it all comes down to the the argument techniques. Like I, there's a, there's a hell of a lot of YouTube videos out there, especially with. Um, Trump speeches from his presidential election and they'll pick apart what he's saying and it's actually really interesting like they are so cleverly articulated the way they like um, tell their speeches to the to the audience that they can change someone's thoughts in milliseconds just by as you say switching a tiny bit of, bit of language that they use it's I find it fascinating because it as it's all it takes is to change one word and the whole meaning of the sentence can change with it. Right. Right. And, um, I've, I've not actually seen the uh, the picking apart of the Trump speeches, but I can imagine how interesting that would be uh, mm. just to see how he does it. I know there are books written on it. There's one, um, that I've not read, but I've heard of by, uh, Scott Adams, the guy who did the uh, Dilbert comics. So he, uh, yeah, he, he talks about, I don't know if he talks about this or if somebody else does, but one thing that Trump does very effectively is that he repeats the same message over and over again in simple language, a la- language that any person can understand. And it doesn't really matter if it's the truth or not. Just repeating that message over and over again is what helps him be, uh, be effective. Um, just, just that constant repetition. Uh, it's, um, yeah, it's something that I'd, I'd love to... Um, to, to delve into some more just to see how you know how these people um, are able to, to convince large swaths of the of the population of, of something without you know without logic just by uh just by virtue of their uh you know personality and charisma and the way they talk it's fascinating but it's not new i mean it's it's been the case for no. as long as as long as uh you know since the since the greeks probably and, well, maybe that can be your your next book idea. Pick apart the next presidential election and the and the languages they use. I mean, you probably won't, but it's just someone. <laughs> I'm sure someone will. I'm sure someone will. Um, I want to dive into a new section of the podcast that I've come up with, and it's something that I do talk about heavily in my episodes, which is failure. But I want to dedicate a section in the show to where I ask my guests their what they consider to be their two biggest failures in their journey so far. And then we'll sort of pick apart and discuss the lessons learned and the experience itself and how they've been able to progress because of that failure. So, Ali, what do you think are your two biggest failures in your journey so far? 
Well, my uh, my first biggest failure was the thing we uh, we touched on, which was the uh, the first book and uh, projecting that and getting that on the the right path to success. Um, it didn't last that long, only because I was in a point in my life where I I was um, fanatically hungry, and I and I wanted this thing to uh, to succeed no matter what. So I put everything I I had in into it. Now, the failure there was not being able to um, get others to see what I was seeing. So I had this this project that was backed by data. If it, if there were no data, it would have been more difficult. But there was data. But I just I couldn't convince the right people that this this thing could work. And um, yeah, getting over that was um, was a was because of a combination of actually stepping in, taking risks. Um, being deliberate about things like advertising. So we didn't talk about advertising in the previous segment, but that's something that I used pretty effectively. I used um, Google ads, uh, Facebook ads to a less, lesser extent, but Google ads mainly. So uh, directing the um, different ads to different audiences and different geographies and different demographics, genders, seeing what worked, what didn't work. Um, and even targeting ads at people who are searching for the names of publishers and edit editors. So if an editor were Googling themselves, for instance, all of a sudden they'll see this project. I thought maybe that would be one way to get to them. And um, yeah, that was, uh, that was how uh, I, came, I, I overcame that one. Uh, second um, failure, which is still, a, still to be seen if it is a failure or not, is um, ongoing. ongoing. Yeah, I'm currently experimenting with uh, my first work of fiction. So again, we, uh, we talked about books that are for children that are actually meant for adults. So I'm currently working on a project that is about separation anxiety and uh, empathy. And it's, um, it looks like a picture book, but it's meant for a, an, an older audience. And uh, for the past, I would say, six months, I've been working on selling that manuscript, and it's not been, uh, it's not been easy so far. So that's what's currently top of mind for me is how can we again how can I how can I convince a publisher that this is a a project that 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 can work and is a book the right medium in fact this is um another thing I've considered sometimes uh, failure in one medium can mean success in another medium and maybe the medium is unnecessarily constraining uh, us so if it's not a book what else could it be are there other angles that I could uh, you know approach this problem from um, but I like that I like uh, I like having a, a failure or like a difficulty that I have to deal with because it gives me hope and I like that state of chasing after something with hope I think yeah. if things were if things were easy uh, you know if, if it was just a case of coming up with a pitch and going to your manager and saying we want to work on this project in the next fiscal year and him or her saying yes that, that would be no fun and similarly in publishing if you just write up put together a manuscript, send it to your agent, and they say, sure, this is going to be a bestseller. Again, that's, I think that's, that takes some of the fun out of it. But being in this, in this uh, state where you're, kind of, where you're not exactly sure if the thing will work or not, and uh, trying to think about it and then think about it some more, and uh, changing it slowly, iterating over it, I think that's, for me, I enjoy that process. It reminds me that you, know, you always have to go back to square one after every project. It doesn't matter how successful you are, but I guess if you get to a certain level, maybe it's different. But for the majority of the population, no, no matter how successful you are, you always have to go back to square one for the next project, go back to first principles. 
think about those things that made those projects a success. And um, there's always a, a factor that sometimes we don't take in, into consideration, and that's time and luck. You know, time and luck might have been on your side with the previous project, but now maybe times are different. Maybe uh, the right people won't won't see it anymore. So it's it's a, it's a confluence of factors, but um, that's that's where I'm at right now. It's interesting. It's nerve wracking, but exciting. So what what? Because I'm not familiar with the process. How would like an average pitch with and so you're the book you're pitching at the moment. What would an average pick pitch to your agent look like? Like what would you? Is it like a? I assume it's set up in a meeting scenario. What would you go in and say to these people? Like what do they ask you? So if you have rapport with the, the person, if you have an existing agent, it's, uh, it's pretty informal. Uh, the query letter will be an introduction of the project, what, what makes it different, and why you think it's going to succeed. And then other details like, for instance, who the illustrator is or ought to be, um, and so on. How many pages, how you envision the creative direction going, uh, and so on. If it's, um, if it's a new relationship or if it's a cold query to someone, then it's... Um, it depends on the uh, the agent. Uh, usually, agents have a page on a website called Publishers Marketplace, where they list projects they've uh, uh, taken on, how they've done in terms of sales, if they've won any awards, and how you should approach them. So that's that's to, that should be your first um, kind of the first place you go to. And then on the uh, literary agency website, usually they list other details, you know, like uh, how how long it should be, if you should include a manuscript or not. Um, uh, if, if it should be an attachment or if it should be inline or if it should be on Dropbox. So that's, that, that would give you a sense of um, how, to, uh, how, to, how to write the query. But the real question is, who do you approach? And for that, there are different ways of doing it. You could go to websites that list all the agencies, agencies that exist today in the US, for instance, or elsewhere. Uh, or you could go to, um, there's a website called, I think it might also be Publishers Marketplace, where you pay a, a subscription uh, monthly subscription and then you can search and filter on agents in the genres that, that you care about or what I did and what I like to do is I go to uh, books that I know about that I like and that I think are uh, kind of close to what I'm trying to do and see who the agents for those authors are mm-hmm. they either they either thank those agents in their acknowledgement section or they mention them on their websites or there are I can do a google search for the, the book title sometimes the agent name comes up so that's how I kind of come up with the uh, the list of agents, and then um, yeah, pro, um, you cross your fingers. Them. Yeah, query them. Uh, wait for a few weeks, and uh, uh, nine times out of ten they'll say no, but the uh, the one time they say yes, you know that's hopefully the right person. And uh, some uh, publishers, like I was saying, accept unsolicited manuscripts. So FSG does or did at least. Chronicle Books does. Uh, I think it's called Anderson Press in the UK. Uh, Candlewick Press or the UK equivalent of Candlewick Press does as well so you can send them manuscripts but it's always better to have an agent because they can uh, they can do things that you don't have time for or you don't know about like negotiating contracts and getting you a good advance I mean it's it's, it's all just really interesting stuff to know just in this way I sort of when industries pop up on the podcast I haven't really got any in, like previous knowledge in it's just interesting to ask the questions that you wouldn't easily find just on Google like that. So it's more of a selfish question on my part where if I eventually decide to write a book, I know what I'm doing as such. Oh yeah, you should, uh, you should definitely consider it. And uh, today there are, 
uh, you also have the self-publishing uh, option, which didn't exist many years ago. Uh, self-publishing is a different beast, though. Uh, you're, you're competing against many more authors and, and books. Uh, if you do have a following, though, I think that's the thing that I've come to learn. If you do already have an established following on Twitter, mailing list, podcast, whatever the case may be, it makes it easier to, uh, to self-publish and to have that book do well. Mm. Um, but uh, traditional publishing is, for me personally, I think is, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite different. I mean, if, um, the, the, the relationship with the editor, the way the, the work kind of progresses in the year or two before it actually is published, uh, just going into their offices, seeing you know, hundreds of years of history, it's, um, there is a bit of a kind of an emotional, um, yeah. sentimental uh, component to it. And um, yeah, these um, publishers, they, uh, you know, they know what they're doing. They, they're, they're in the business and they've remained in the business despite the, uh, you know, all the changes around them because they know how to sell books. So uh, hopefully, yeah, if, if, um, if they do acquire a manuscript that you've, you've sent them and they like it and they're excited about it, then they'll know how to, uh, how to sell it. And I mean, that's sort of what you want really, isn't it? If you've, if you've not sold a book before, you kind of want someone by your side that knows how to sell one as such. And another, exactly. another, another self, bit of more of a selfish question then, should I ever decide to write a book, is how, how do you overcome writer's block or something that you just get stuck and you don't know what to write about? How would you overcome that yourself? Do you have any like tips and tricks or do you take a step back, take just a week off? What, what do you do to just get past that block of not knowing what to put down on the paper? Yeah, for me, the quality that I uh, prioritize over everything else is momentum, uh, even over outcome. So if I, uh, the, the, my goal every day is to, is to do something, is to make progress on something. So right now I'm working on another project where, I'm, uh, where I have um, a compilation of small moments from provincial life. So it's, some of it is based, uh, is autobiographical, but other, uh, other parts of it are not. But it's the, the whole point of that project, which is probably going to stay a private project, no one's ever going to see any of that stuff. But it's just to make sure that I'm constantly moving forward. So that has helped me. And, and uh, it, it is unconstrained work. So there's no pressure to, uh, to post it on Instagram or to get any likes for it or to worry about sales or who's going to like this. It's just purely for me. And uh, that has helped me just uh, constantly being in motion and... Uh, you know, no matter no matter what, if no matter who sees it, no matter where it goes, just having something that keeps me moving forward has has been helpful. And uh, sometimes, you know, some more mornings I'll be working on that other project, and then halfway through I'll I'll say, oh well, I got this other idea for this uh, this main project that I that I do want to sell. And uh, so I, I go back and forth, but I would say momentum and constantly having something to uh, to work on has, has been helpful for me. Yeah. Do you, do you carry around like a, a notepad with you as well then? So if you've just got a random thought throughout the day, just jot it down, just anything like that. Uh, I'm, I'm not as, as romantic as that. So I don't have a notepad, but I do have a phone. Notes on your phone. Yeah. I, I, use the, uh, I use the notes app just to jot down uh, notes. And I always add idea uh, at the top of the, uh, the screen, I guess, so that if I do want to search for all, all the ideas that I've, I've had in the, you know, the span of the past few months, I can look them up quickly. And then I, um, I have a fairly cheap MacBook Pro uh, that I, I carry around. I don't have any data stored on it. All the data is on 
you know, on, on the cloud. That way I don't have to worry about damaging it or it getting old and slow or uh, yeah. losing it. So there's no, uh, no stress associated with, with any of that. And I started using uh, an app called uh, Scrivener a couple of years okay. ago. And it's, it's been pretty good. It has, a, it has a nice writing mode. So if you press uh, Command-Shift-F after you open the, uh, the tool, you'll go in full screen and it will be a uh, dark mode. And so you can write without distractions. You know, you're not seeing your email pop up and other things kind of flash uh, everywhere on the screen. So that's, that's been pretty good for me as well. I don't, use any, yeah, I don't use any of the other uh, organizational stuff that it comes with, but just having a distraction-free window has, has been pretty helpful. That's good to know. If I ever started, that app would probably be a brilliant idea. Because I mean, someone at the end of my last episode, someone said, almost, if you, I don't know if you've read, um, Tim Ferriss wrote a book called Tools of Titans. And it's basically a summary of his around first 200 podcast episodes and just breaking down the lessons he learned from each episode. Obviously, his, he's got a different scale of guests. He's interviewing billionaires, um, Golden Globe, award-winning actors and actresses. And, all of, but I think it'd be almost quite interesting to have a small one for my podcast and people like yourself who are just winning every day. Like they may not be billionaires, but something that just brings people back to a level of something that looks achievable for them as such. I think so maybe something. So maybe I might get to that point and I might think I'd have a go at that. But it's just just an idea. It's something in my notes. Yeah, I think uh, that that is definitely an achievable goal. Uh, I, I've never read any of Tim Ferriss's books, but I did read his uh, blog uh, a while back, a few years ago. And I, I, it must have been the post where he talks about, uh, it was his uh, four-hour workweek uh, book that I was yeah. about to come out and how he did the, uh, the marketing and advertising for that book. And I felt it was uh, full of practical advice. And um, he came across as, um, as uh, yeah, someone who was pragmatic, and uh, was willing to kind of put ego to one side and just do whatever would was would work. So, uh, and I agree, that's the uh, that's the mindset you want to have uh, if you want to hopefully get to that level. And that's what I tell myself. You know, it's it's always uh, small steps. Um, small steps end up kind of uh, having a cumulative effect after a while. You might not notice them right away, but when you yeah. look back after a year, you know, at the end of 2020, you look back and you go, oh, well, I had. A thousand uh, downloads in January. Now I have ten thousand. So at least that's one measure of of success. And then hopefully that propels you to something something greater. For sure, and that's the thing. That's another thing that I'm always, especially over the past four or five months, I've sort of told myself: if you just can just chip away two hours a day, that I said at the beginning of the episode with your book, and if you're just writing for two hours a day, it it adds up. You may not realize it because you're only doing one or two hours a day, but it gets to that point where you can look back and you think. Shit, I've done quite a lot here. It's come quite a long way, and you look back over, as you say, in a year's time, and it might have progressed what you wouldn't even thought it could have progressed just by just chipping away at it every single day. And I, so that's sort of what I'm telling myself. That's my that's one of my 2020 goals, just to chip away every single day. Yeah, if you if you I don't know if you listen to uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, but he's got like 1,300 episodes so far. I don't know. I didn't follow him until recently. So, but I'm pretty sure when he first started, he first started out, he didn't have as many views as he does right now. So probably he kept on, uh, you know, posting these uh, episodes. And then at some point, I don't know when. At some point, you know, he uh, he became super popular, and then people go back and watch all his previous episodes. And so you might, you know, going to him right now, you might think, well, he was always destined to become popular. 
But part of the uh, the reason he did was because uh, you know he just kept at it, and, uh, yeah. and you see that you see that a lot on on YouTube and maybe with podcasts generally that someone will put out episode after episode after episode. Uh, he doesn't, you know, he or she might not have uh, much of a following, and then at some point, a year or two or three down the line, something happens, and then people go back and listen to everything that came before that point. Um, I was looking that at. Yeah, I was looking at Apple's uh, uh, stock price the other day. Like for 20, 25, 30 years, it was at $1 or $2. I was thinking, imagine if you were at Apple or if you were running Apple. Uh, throughout that, and your tenure probably would not have spanned 30 years. It would have been somewhere in between for four or five years. You would go into the company. You would leave with a stock price that was, I was around $1 to $2. And then all of a sudden now it's at like 313 or whatever the case may be. Uh, but it's... Um, you never know what's what's kind of beyond the uh, the horizon. So it's, I'm, I'm a big believer in sticking with things. Uh, if you're passionate about it, just sticking with it, uh, no matter what. And then at, at some point, you know, times change, the general moods of uh, mood of the uh, kind of the mainstream changes, and uh, someone mentions you in an article or uh, in, a, in, a, in an episode of something, and then all of a sudden you're 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 an overnight success. But no one sees the the stuff that came before it. Overnight success in quotation marks. That's what. No, but and, and that's the exciting thing. It's like when you've got something like this, especially with you say the same with your book. It could be just one point. Someone says yes, or you get featured in something, then bam, you're away. It's exciting because you don't. It could happen at any point, and you've just got to think to yourself that if I can just keep pushing out content and I can keep pushing out what I'm really good at or what I enjoy, eventually, who knows what might happen? And that's what I love about this is that at one day it could be number one i'm not saying it will be and i'm not and i know no, it's a ridiculous goal but it's 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 every anything is possible when it comes to this sort of thing so it's exciting it's a yeah. it's a journey just got to stick it out i do you, you, need, you need to have ridiculous goals i think it's it's helpful yeah well okay that is my ridiculous goal <laughs> <laughs> so that that they are all the sort of main questions I wanted to talk to you about what you do and your book and your job and how you balance your time. But there are, I like to round the episode off with some quick fire questions. And throughout my previous episodes, there was three set questions I asked, but I thought it's time for a change up. So not only have you been the first guest to answer the two failures questions, you are the first one to answer my new three round, my new three round off questions. So are you ready? So the first question is, who is the first come, who is the first person that comes to mind when I say the word successful? Uh, so this is, uh, I'm going to reveal uh, like a, a, a recency bias here because it just so happens that last night I was watching a, a video about Gordon Ramsay uh, so that, that he comes to mind. And I thought it was interesting because it taught me um, when you should give up. So he was, he wanted to be a footballer but he realized at some point that he didn't want to be like his dad who was a failed musician. Apparently, I don't know if he was a failed musician, but at least he didn't make it as big as he did as he wanted to. So uh, he made the conscious decision to switch careers and uh, became a chef. And then it so happened that he was on TV and that did well. So he became a success off the back of that. No, I know. I think he's a great one as well. He's obviously huge in the UK. He's on all publications, all TV, pops up pops up everywhere so no i completely agree gordon ramsay is a great great first person um next question what advice would you give to your 20 year old self 
Yeah, I would say uh, I would say smile more. Don't take it too uh, too seriously. I was pretty serious back then, only because I was an idealist. As I say, I, I, at 20, I would have just gone into uh, co- uh, grad school, and uh, I had not seen the real world. And I, uh, I thought the real world was what I was seeing in academia. Uh, obviously, academia is, uh, is, is you're surrounded by idealists because you're, uh, hmm. you're working on things that you think ought to uh, be everywhere in the world, but that's not the case. So I would say um, stay focused, but also, uh, also enjoy, uh, enjoy life. One thing I regret is that I never took a gap year uh, when I was in college and I, or after college. And I think for my daughter, I would, I would encourage her to do that. Maybe uh, spend a year traveling or just doing something else. Just widen your horizons. Just uh, see how other people live. Um, see what's out there. Don't get too specialized too quickly. I agree as well because I saw because I, I didn't I didn't go to university I came straight out of higher education like sixth form as we call it in in England and went straight into a full-time job and I kind of wish I did a I kind of wish I did a gap year I don't regret not doing one but I kind of think that I almost should have done one because I look at obviously because I'm now in the full-time working environment I look back and I think one year out would have made no difference whatsoever to my working career because one one year in the terms of your career is next to nothing so just by taking a year out and having those experiences would have been wouldn't have been a bad idea but i don't regret not doing it i hopefully one day i will get to travel and see like i go on enough i go on three holidays a year like three like city breaks a year because i just get to see around whether that's just a long weekend but going away for a, as you say an extended period of time doing a gap year traveling around i think would have been would have been good fun. Yeah, uh, you should go. To, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you've been, but I, I would like to go to uh, Cornwall. I've uh, I was reading about it as and it seems very. I was reading about it from I think it was in the 18th century or the 17th century when it was like the original Silicon Valley, where uh, there was all these in, there was all these um, companies. I guess that's what you would call them in the uh, mining industry, and uh, they would. Uh, they would freely trade ideas and innovations between them. So very similar to the way, say, open source innovation happens uh, in tech. Uh, so that made me want to want to visit that city. And then I uh, I got hooked on this TV show called uh, Poldark. I don't know if it's it's probably popular in the UK, but it was I was pretty addicted to it. And I think that takes place there. So that got me um, thinking that yeah, maybe if I do visit the UK again, I'll, I'll have to uh, check out that city. I've I've been once and it just rained every day, which I mean, yeah, it was lovely, but it just rained every day. And I mean, that's the one, that's the one chance you take coming to England, everyone is you cannot rely on the weather. It can be horrendous. Yeah, it's raining. It's raining now. It's raining now. So proves it. Proves my point. Final question. And it's, it's a bit of a morbid question to end the episode, but I, this is one question I have kept in because I get some seriously interesting answers. And it's, it's very simple. And it's, are you afraid of dying? I am afraid of dying. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I don't think I've ever, ever actually mentioned this in public, but that was part of the reason why I worked on bad arguments and why I was... Uh, uh, why I was hungry to make it work because I, I was having some uh, some health issues at the time, and I, I I genuinely did not know how things were gonna turn out. So I thought, you know, 
life is short. Um, I might might not get another chance at this. So let's let's go all in. So I think there's value in um, in thinking about death only in terms of uh, only so that it encourages you to make optimal use of the time you have. But it's not a useful dwelling on it because, as one of my philosopher friends would say, once you're dead, that's it. You're not going to realize it or or feel it. Uh, so yeah, just um, just realizing that you know, death is the end, and uh, we only have you know so much time before before it, it visits us all. So it's it's worth doing what we think is you know we can, doing the things that that allow us to add value um, to people's lives, yeah. and um, it is a, it is a motivator. I, I I definitely think that it is a motivator, but yeah, not something that I I dwell on as much nowadays. No, and I agree. And thank you for sharing that as well, because obviously that's a past experience of yours. And I, it's something I read today, actually. It was in this Tim Ferriss book. And one of his guests on his podcast worked out his, basically worked out his average age of how how long he had left. And on his computer screen, put a countdown timer of the amount of days it predicted him to have left. And Apparently, that was one of the most motivating things you could possibly do. Just seeing a countdown clock of until you could potentially die on your screen every day gets your ass in gear. So I might, that's something I might take into account and do myself. I just thought it was quite interesting and quite a good way of looking at that. I, I agree. You should definitely live every day as fully. I know it sounds very cliche, live every day to the best you possibly can, but it's true. It is true. At the end of the day, it is true. There are only, you do have a number, a limited number of days on this planet. So make the most of it. Make yeah. the most of it. And, and it makes you realize how, like, how much of the stuff that we worry about are distractions or are petty. Just not worth, worth your time. Um, in whatever, whatever your day job is, there's going to be politics. Uh, in life, there's going to be, uh, there, there are going to be things that, uh, that you, you're going to want changed, but you only control the things that you uh, that you can that you can change, and everything else you try not to worry about. Uh, there was actually a good um, commencement speech by uh, Steve Jobs. I think it was at Stanford. It's available on on YouTube, where he talks about uh, death as a motivator for for him personally, and it's it's a pretty good speech. So I, I definitely, um, uh, yeah, I definitely, if you should definitely check it out. It's um, he talks about. The same stuff that we've we've talked about. You know, we have so much time. Do the things that you think um, can add value, and uh, yeah, don't worry about about it beyond that. Of course, I know I will give it a listen as soon as we're done. But that is all the questions I have for you today. But I'd love for you to just share with the listeners where they can follow up with you, links to your book, and just any other anything else you'd like to plug. Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, my website is mylastname.com. Uh, there's a link to my uh, mailing list there. That's um, I, I send out two emails to it on average every year, but it's the best way to um, to stay connected. And otherwise, uh, Instagram. That's the only platform that I'm uh, really active on. Not so much on the other ones. Yeah, for sure. Thank and you so much for having me. No, of course. And I will leave links to those in the show notes below. So don't worry if you've forgotten those already. I will simply just scroll down and you can click. But once again, thank you for joining me on this episode of CEO Journals.
So that's going to wrap up today's episode of the podcast and I can't thank you all enough for listening. I aim to interview some of the most incredible business owners and entrepreneurs every single week. So you can really help me out by smashing that subscribe button and by leaving me a five-star review over in the iTunes store. It literally takes two seconds and will help me secure some of the greatest names in business as guests on the show. Make sure you tune into the next episode where I'm going to be talking to another incredibly interesting guest. I'll be discussing their journey and providing tips to all your aspiring and current business owners. Have a lovely rest of your day and once again, thank you for tuning in to CEO Journals.